your Bibles this morning, would you please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We're in the, actually not in the middle of a study anymore. We're coming to the end of this study. should be only just a couple more weeks. And we've reached chapter 12, right around verse 11, and so I'll ask you to turn there. And while you're turning there, let's just look to the Lord for a brief word of prayer. Would you join me? Lord Jesus, we now submit ourselves to you through your word. And we ask that you would make it clear to us so that we could know life to the full and so that we could live it out fully in this world in which we live. In your name, amen. Several weeks ago, the um, TV news magazine 60 Minutes interviewed Christopher Hitchens. Maybe some of you saw that. Correspondent Steve Croft introduced Hitchens as one of the world's leading public intellectuals. But don't let the word intellectual scare you off, Croft assured us real quickly. He says, you may be infuriated by some of his opinions, but it's not likely you'll be bored. Hitchens, he says, is an engaging, bare-knuckled writer who uses words as weapons to eviscerate egos and slaughter sacred cows. As recent examples, Croft uh, gave these. Henry Kissinger, he says, was called by Hitchens a war criminal. Bill Clinton was referred to as a con man. The British royal family is described as, by Hitchens, a blight on the reputation of England. And he's even dared to call Mother Teresa a fanatical Albanian dwarf. So referring to Hitchens' most recent book, which titled, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything, Croft turned to him and said, you've elevated your career by picking on bigger and bigger targets. It's kind of gone from Hitchens against Kissinger to Hitchens against Clinton to Hitchens against Mother Teresa to Hitchens against God. Ah, well, Hitchens replied, it has to end with the divine, doesn't it? I mean, that is the origin of all dictatorship. And there in a soundbite, you have Hitchens' method. Not dialogue, not reason, not evidence, not discussion. Just this big, great, huge dose of audacity and cheekiness and attack. Now, it's not my purpose to talk to you about Hitchens today. By the way, if you want to read a Christian response to Hitchens uh, and some of the things he's been writing, you can find it on ChristianityToday.com. And there's a theologian who's done a five-part explanation uh, or uh, interview or debate with Hitchens. You can turn there and find that. But my point this morning is to say that Hitchens is the kind of opponent the Apostle Paul found himself up against in the city of Corinth. They were a brash, brassy set of personalities who didn't so much win an argument as kowtow others into submission using what I would guess I would call intellectual shock and awe. Paul tersely calls them in chapter, 12, chapter 11, verse 5, super apostles. 
And in chapter 11, verse 20, and we'll show you this verse here in just a second, he gives us a snapshot of how they work. Notice what he says. He says, you put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you. And here are the three key words. Notice the word taking, take advantage of you, pushing, pushing himself forward, and slapping, slapping you in the face. Taking, pushing, slapping. That's the way they were defining strength at Corinth. And at Corinth, it had so infected the congregation that anything less than this was branded as weak. You weren't weak if you didn't take, if you didn't push, if you didn't slap. Now, the Apostle Paul doesn't see that as strength at all. You can see what he calls it. He calls it enslavery. He calls it exploitation. And he's actually been attempting to combat this throughout the entirety of his book of 2 Corinthians. And 2 Corinthians chapter 11, or chapter 12, verses 11 through 21, brings us to a summary, and that's the passage that we're going to be looking at today. Now, because this passage is a summary, Paul, he, he does us a great favor here. He, he begins to use some summary words. He begins to use summary phrases and he begins to use summary statements to help us understand what it is he's trying to say or what it is he's been saying throughout this large book of 2 Corinthians. So I want you to look at verse 19 of chapter 12. That's sort of the pivotal text of this section. And it really gives us the theme of what he's talking about about these particular super apostles. So verse 19 of chapter 12. He says to the Corinthians, Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? Don't want you to think that all. We've actually been speaking, and here are three key phrases, in the sight of God, as those in Christ, in everything we do, dear friends, has been for your strengthening. So the theme of this Second Corinthians writing, and especially the center section, is how to build up Christians, how to strengthen Christians, how to make them strong in the Lord. And what he wants to talk about is what does it mean to be strong in the sight of God, in God's presence? What does it mean for Christians to be built up, to be strong in Christ? What does it mean for a Christian to be strong, to be built up, to be edified in everything we do? And Paul answers the questions to these, this particular theme by painting for us a series of contrasts in this chapter. And each one of them is marked in summary form by a phrase. And the first phrase you're going to find at the very end of verse 11. Do you see it there? It's that phrase, I am nothing. I want you to just make a note that that's there. I am nothing. That's going to summarize the first part of what he attempts to say to us in these contrasts. Let's now read this section, this, this uh, first set of verses, this paragraph, and then see if we can figure out what the Apostle Paul is attempting to say to us. He says in uh, chapter 12, verse 11, I've made a fool of myself, haven't I? Actually, he's talking about this whole fool's uh, section that he started back in chapter 11, saying foolish things, trying to get on the same ground with the super apostles who lived in such a different world. I made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. I ought to have been commended by you, for I am not in the least inferior to the super apostles, even though I am nothing." 
the things that mark an apostle, signs and wonders and miracles, they were done. And they were done among you with great perseverance. So how were you inferior to the other churches except that I was never a burden to you? Forgive me, he says, this particular wrong. Do you see the contrast there? The first contrast is this. It's pushing myself forward versus relying on God's grace. And the thing I want you to notice is that the first building block in the super apostles, what can we call them, tactics of strength, was to build themselves up by putting other people down. And you see that two places in this particular section, this particular paragraph, where he talks about being inferior. They were using the terminology of inferior and superior. Superior and inferior. That's just the way they thought in terms of things. And he says, you know, I'm not the least inferior to the super apostles. And oh, by the way, you aren't the least bit inferior to any of the other churches. It's almost adolescent, isn't it? the way they were painting this picture. It's sort of like, my dog's bigger than your dog. My dad's tougher than your dad. My car is nicer than your car. My home's larger than your home. My job's better than your job. That's the way they were talking to the Corinthians. They were using terms like, I'm better than you are. I'm, in, I'm superior, you're inferior. And the whole thing you know, just made Paul just sad. Now, we all do this. You have to admit, we all do this. It's one of the commonest expressions of pride. We all tend to compare ourselves with one another. It's deeper than, well, there's another form of pride that we could call self-absorption. I did this this morning in front of the mirror. Once was a man named Narcissus who thought himself quite delicious, so he stared like a fool at his face in the pool, and his folly today is still with us. I did it today in the mirror. Oh, how beautiful you are. You know, mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest gem of all? I won. That's the pride of self-absorption. But the pride that they were exercising here was the pride of competition. As one writer puts it, it's the kind of pride in which a person only feels good by making somebody else look bad. I may be stupid and ugly, this person says to himself in his mind, but compared to that guy, I'm a combination of Albert Einstein and Brad Pitt. And I must say to you, as I was looking in the mirror, that thought passed my mind too. But (laughs) C.S. Lewis once called pride the thing we most hate to see in others and the thing we are most willing to tolerate in ourselves. But for Paul, it was a deeply embarrassing trait. It was so deep that he thought it revealed a deep, tragic misunderstanding of the gospel. And that's what he's attempting to address here. So now let's take a look at Paul's embarrassment. I want you to get a little bit of the flavor of what Paul is saying in this passage. We've already read through it literally, but get a feel for a paraphrase. The paraphrase would go something like this. Paul is saying, I've made a fool of myself, haven't I? But isn't that the game you've been playing there at Corinth? All this talk about superior and inferior apostles. Don't you see how ugly and repulsive all that is? How can I make you understand that it's simply not fitting for Christians to think, to act, to live like this? See Paul's embarrassment? He doesn't even know how to address it. He doesn't even know how to get on the same platform 
with the super apostles. And that's why this whole fool speech that started back in 11, chapter 11, verse 1, has been so difficult for him. Well, Paul then goes about correcting it because this is such a serious, serious thing. And his correction consists of two statements. And the first statement is in chapter 12, verse 11, the second part. That's the part I wanted you to note there. He says, I am not the least inferior to the super apostles, even though I am nothing. That's the phrase. That's the first way he addresses it. It's a paradoxical statement. And and let me see if I can illustrate what he's trying to get at by telling you a story. You may have seen this story. I read it a number of years ago in uh, an old InterVarsity Press uh, magazine that they used to publish. The story is called The Day After Palm Sunday. And it goes like this. The donkey awakened the day after Palm Sunday. His mind was still savoring the afterglow of what had been the most exciting day of his young life. Never before had he ever felt such a rush of pleasure and pride. So he walked into town and he found a group of people standing by the well. He said, I'll show myself to them. But they didn't take any notice. They just went on drawing their water and they paid him no mind. Throw down your garments, he said crossly. Don't you know who I am? But they just looked at him in silence, and someone slapped him across the rump and ordered him to move on. Miserable heathens, he muttered to himself. I'll just go to the market where the good people are. They'll remember me. But the same thing happened. No one paid any attention to the donkey as he strutted down the main street in front of the marketplace. The palm branches, he shouted. Where are the palm branches? Yesterday you all waved palm branches. Well, he was hurt and he was confused. And so he sulked back home to his mother. And his mother listened to his story and then gently responded, Foolish child, don't you know that without him you can do nothing? You get it? Jesus makes all the difference. It's not very complimentary, I know. It's not the way we like to think about ourselves. But I once heard it described something like this. It's like a page filled with zeros. You fill the entire page with zeros. And it doesn't matter how big some of those zeros are. It doesn't matter how small some of those zeros are. It doesn't matter. Size doesn't matter if you're a zero. An entire page of zeros adds up to what? Zero. But if you put a one anywhere, I don't care where, anywhere on that page, it can be the first number, it can be the middle number, it can be the last number, you put a one anywhere on that page and now suddenly the zeros count. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. You guys don't get it. You've left the numeral one out. You've left Jesus out of the equation. You're a bunch of zeros. I'll grant you, as zeros, we're nobody. But you put Jesus in the equation, and you don't have to compare your zero with somebody else's zero. Now suddenly, your zero 
counts. It's absolutely wrong for us to live this life attempting to go around and say, oh, my zero is bigger than your zero. My zero has more hair than your zero, but I'll forgive you for that one this morning. It just doesn't count. Paul says, you know what? I am. Without Jesus, I'm zero. I'm nothing. But add Jesus to my life. Add that number one. And suddenly, now, my life is defined. Well, that brings me to the second statement here. The Apostle Paul's statement is that, you know, once Jesus came into my life, now all of a sudden things start to happen. He says, I'm nothing, verse 11, but verse 12, the things that now mark an apostle, that is, after Jesus had converted him marvelously on the Damascus Road, now that I'm an apostle, whoa, things started to happen. There were signs and wonders and miracles. Those are apostolic things. Uh, The New Testament tells us about those things. But I want you to notice, you see that word done? That's what's called by New Testament students the divine passive. Paul didn't say, I did them. He didn't say, I ran around doing signs and wonders and miracles. What he says is, as I fulfilled my calling, God called me to be an apostle. And as I did what he called me to do, God verified my ministry. Signs and wonders and miracles were done. That's the divine passive. They were done. The human active is among you as I exercised great perseverance. And so what Paul is attempting to say to us is, you know, the most we can say to ourselves is, once we know who we are in Christ, then all of a sudden what was zero now becomes something that matters. Now, the way to get the best out of this passage, Paul was an apostle. You have to rub out the word apostle. That's probably not your calling. I'm guessing it's not. I'm pretty sure it's not mine. But you do know you have a calling, don't you? You do know that you have a spiritual gift. And so you rub out the Apostle Paul's word, apostle, and you put in there, what is your calling? What is your gift? You're calling to be a mom, a dad, a husband, a father, a worker of some sort, a nurse, whatever. Whatever your calling is, as you fill that in there, and as you do that in the strength of Christ, then your zero counts. I am now something. Jesus makes my life different. I once heard Christian success defined like this. I think it's a pretty good definition. It's just really quite basic. It goes like this. Find out what God wants you to do, and then do it. That's Christian success. Don't compare yourself to other people. Don't worry about what other people think about what you're doing. Find out how God has designed you, what God has made you to be, how God has created you, what your personality is. Find out, figure out who you are under God, and then do it. And that's success. And then Paul would say, and oh, by the way, leave the outcome, leave the results to Him, the divine passive. He'll make your life count. You don't have to worry about that part of the equation. But Paul says, none of this has anything to do with comparing ourselves to others. So what does it mean to be strong before God in Christ and in everything we do? Well, we can say three things based on what we've just seen here. We can say, the less I exalt myself at others' expense, the stronger before God in Christ in everything I do, I become. 
the more I define myself in terms of Christ, the stronger I become. The more fully I give myself to God's call on my life, whatever it might be, the stronger I become. My true self is what I am in Christ and in my calling. And everything else is just foolish strutting. Which brings me to uh, the second phrase in chapter 12. You'll see it in verse 15 there. Paul says, So I very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. Take note of that and then let's read these next set of verses from 14 down to 18. Paul says, Now I'm ready to visit you for the third time, and I will not be a burden to you, because what I want is not your possessions. Now, did you notice two words here already in verse 14? Burden and want. Burden and want. After all, he says, Children should not save up for their parents, but parents for their children. We're talking about little children here. So he says, I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself. Do you see it? Spend and expend. Spend and expend. See how different that is? Burden, want, spend, expend. I love you more. Will you love me less? Be that as it may. If I have not, uh, be that as it may, I have not been a burden to you. There's our burden word again. Yet crafty fellow that I am, he's talking ironically here, I caught you by trickery, eh? Did I exploit you? See the word exploit? You might want to note that. Did I exploit you through the men I sent to you to take up an offering that he had just taken up? I urged Titus to go to you and to send our brother with him. Titus didn't exploit you, did he? Did we not act in the same spirit and follow the same course? I don't know if you notice what's going on here, but on the one side you have a set of comparative terms, burden, want, exploit. And on the other side of this balancing scale, you have another set of terms, spend, expend, very gladly spend, very gladly expend. You have the super apostles on the one side, burden, want, exploit. You have Paul on the other side, spend, expend. I think this, if the first building block of the super apostles' tactics of strength was to build themselves up by putting other people down, the second was to focus on taking from people rather than giving to people. Taking from, rather than giving to. The Apostle Paul didn't see it that way. And I think there's probably a good reason for this difference. I think it's because these super apostles were, now they wouldn't admit it, but I think they were running on empty. It's like the statement I once had a friend make to me when I was in college. It went something like this. He said, Jim... There really are two kinds of people in the world, aren't there? One group of people, I call them, he says, empty cups. All their relationships are basically the same desperate, repeated plea. I'm empty. Fill me up. I'm empty. Fill me up. I'm empty. Fill me up. Empty cup people. Jimmy says... I don't want to be an empty cup kind of person. I want to be a full one, one that overflows. I want to be an overflowing cup. I think the super apostles, in spite of all the bluster and all the flurry and all the brandishment and all the boasting and all the bragging, were basically empty cups. 
because they wouldn't receive what the Lord had to give them, either for salvation or for Christian strength, they were forced to be on the take everywhere they went. I need from you. I need from you. And so burden and exploiting, that was just a part of their vocabulary. But it wasn't for the Apostle Paul. And I think there's a good reason. I think the Apostle Paul had learned a biblical principle. I call it the principle of grace in exchange for grace. Have you ever heard that principle? Have you learned that principle yet? It's based on John the Apostle's description in John chapter 1, verse 16. And the phrase goes like this in John 1, 16. It says, From the fullness of His grace we have all received... Now, the NIV translates it this way, one blessing after the other. But the literal translation is really simply grace, anti-grace. Anti is the Greek word, the same Greek word that's used when Jesus gave himself in exchange for us on the cross. Grace in exchange for grace. And now let me tell you how the principle works. Imagine that you've decided that you're going to host a party. And you go to a store and you decide you're going to pick up a few things. Let's see, I'll need some potato chips and I'm going to need some hot dog buns and I'm going to need some dip and yeah, I better get something to drink. But it looks like somebody else in town is also throwing a party. It's about the same time and they're, they've already been there and they're emptying some of the shelves ahead of you. And so when you get to the place where your favorite soft drink, you expect to find it there, there are only a few cans up there on the shelf. In fact, there's only three. You say to yourself, well, that's not nearly enough. Three cans. Who's that gonna, who's that gonna serve? But I better take them just in case. And so you reach up and you take those three cans and you bend over and you put them in your shopping cart and you hear pop, pop, pop. And you look back around and where there were three cans that you took, now there are six. So you grab the six and you turn around and you put them in your cart. Pop, 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 pop. And you turn back around and there are 12. Hey, am I on candid camera? What's going on here? This is kind of spooky. And you reach up and you grab the 12 cans and you put them in your shopping cart. Pop, 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 pop. Before you can get back around, there are 24 cans up there. And you say, 24 cans? This is pretty good. I'm just going to see how far this goes. You pull down the 24. Well, you get the idea. Grace in exchange for grace. We get more grace by taking grace. In fact, if you take one piece of grace from God, you'll find there are two pieces of grace. You don't outtake what God has to give. And the Apostle Paul had learned the principle of grace in exchange for grace. Now, do you think I'm making all this up? Well, Pastor Rick preached a sermon several weeks ago, and he used a passage from First Corinthians or Second Corinthians, chapter nine, verses six through eleven. Let's take a look at this passage. Look what it says. Paul says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his own heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a... And the word there is hilarious giver. <laughs> you mean I can give? <laughs> you want me to give more? <laughs> I, just love, I just love to give. That's the word. The hilarious giver. Then you look at verse 8. Here's the grace in exchange for grace principle. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in how many good works? 
every good work. As it is written, we'll move to the next slide, He has scattered abroad His gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now He who supplies seed to the store, sower, and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed, and He will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion, and through our generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Now, that's not a promise of prosperity. It doesn't mean that you're going to have a health and wealth response. But what it is a promise is that to the extent that you're willing to serve Christ, you'll find that you're going to have more grace to serve Him more. And the more you serve people, the more grace God is going to give you to serve in addition to what you've already served. No wonder John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist, could say to his Methodist people, Do all you can to all the people you can, by all the means you can, in as many ways as you can, for as long as you can. You see, that's this principle. He had learned the principle. The super apostles couldn't. They were empty cups. They were taking, 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 because they had never learned to receive, receive, receive from the grace of God. So, what does it mean to be strong before God and in Christ in everything we do? Well, we can now add a fourth item to our list. And it goes like this. The harder I lean on God's grace, the stronger I become. And then that brings us to our third and final phrase. And you'll see it down here in chapter 12, verse 20. Actually, it's this word, this phrase, I am afraid. Paul actually says that three times. I'm afraid, he says in verse 20. I fear, he says again in verse 20. And then he says in verse 21, I am afraid. Three times. I am afraid. I am afraid. I am afraid. What is it that the Apostle Paul was afraid of? Well, that brings us to this third building block of the super apostles, this tactics of strength. There's no contrast stated here, but I think there is one. It's a logical outcome of pushing and taking, and it represented one of the things that Paul feared most in all of his churches, among all of his people, everywhere he did to do his evangelistic work and his church planting work. This is the thing he was most afraid of, and what is it? Well, read it here in verse, oh, starting at verse 20, the last part. I fear that there may be quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, factions, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. Now, if you'll compare that to the book of Galatians, chapter 5, verse 19, the book of Galatians describes that as the works of the flesh. Paul says, more than anything, when I plant the church... What I'm really afraid of is that church is not going to turn out to be a taste of Jesus. It's going to turn out to be an ugly, quarreling, jealous, angry, faction-based, slanderous, gossipy, arrogant, disorderly group of people. That's the thing I most fear in a church when I plant it. And that's exactly what the super apostles were accomplishing in this particular church. And Paul says it needs to be taken care of. Now, he doesn't give us the contrast, but I think he sort of hints at what may need to happen here. I think the contrast can be discovered to this by taking a look at oh a couple of things. 
Let's look first of all at a at a book here that uh, I was reading not too long ago entitled How to Change the World by written by a sociologist named James Davison Hunter. And it describes this word, uh, I think it's an extension of a French word. Some of you may correct me, but it's, he calls it resentment. I would have just said resentment, but that doesn't sound nearly as cool as resentment. He describes resentment like this. He says resentment is grounded in a narrative of injury, or at least perceived injury, a belief that one has been or is being wronged. In this logic, he says, it's only natural that wrongs need to be righted, and so it is then that the injury, whether real or perceived, leads to an aggrieved, leads the aggrieved to accuse, to blame, to vilify, and then to seek revenge in those whom they see as responsible. The adversary has to be shown for who they are, they have to be exposed for their corruption, and they have to be put in their place. And then he says, though resentment has a historical precedent, it has become the distinguishing characteristic of politics in our modern culture. Have you seen that? Have you noticed that? You've got a little group, and they've defined something that's gone wrong. They have something that they're, you know, dissatisfied with. And so they have to take action. But not just take action. They have to paint the other person in the worst possible light. Now, that's the kind of thing Paul feared happening in his churches. I have my rights. You step on my rights. I've got to take action. And the best way for me to take action is not just to show that you're wrong, but I have to prove that you're a bad person. Resentment. Well, if that's the attitude that Paul feared most, the antidote isn't on the list, but I think it's a deeper understanding of God. The early Christians had this word. It's the Greek word, perichoresis. It's a big theological term. You want to be a theologian, here's a word you need to master, perichoresis. The first part of the word peri just means around or encircling. The last part of the word, choresis, that's the word we get choreographed from. And so think of this as a big encircling dance, could I? Think of this as, in Trinitarian terms, and by the way, it's almost impossible to speak of the Trinity without falling into some kind of heresy, but think of three children, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, holding hands. They're so in love with each other. They're so happy with each other, so, jo- so joyful with one another that they're, they're this big encircling dance, perichoresis. They're dancing around, la, 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 and just having this great time in Trinitarian unity. That's what Paul says is the opposite of the way the super apostles were attempting to teach the Corinthians to live. So he says, you know, what we're really trying to do when we plant churches and what we're really trying to do is when we build communities of Christ, we're really trying to model what we see in the God we worship. There's a passage in 1 John chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 that goes like this. The life appeared. That's Jesus. We have seen it, and we testify to it, and we proclaim to you this eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. So there's the Father and the Son. 
We proclaim to you, the apostles did, what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us, that you may be like the apostles who want to be like the Father and the Son. We could add the Spirit in their relationship. And what are they like? Our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ, so that we might have joy, the passage goes on to say, so that we may have joy in the Christian life. It's a bold picture, trying to imitate the picture of God. By the way, that's the answer to people that say, why do I have to come to church? Why can't I just worship God out under a tree on my own without belonging to a church? You see, there's so many problems at church. There are quarrels there. There can be jealousies there. There can be anger. Why then do I have to come to church? The Apostle Paul says we go to church because God is basically a communitarian God. God is a community. And He wants us to share His communitarian life. He wants us to learn what it's like to live in community. And so heaven is not going to be a vast wilderness where all of us can walk out there on our own and never be bothered by anybody else. Heaven is declared to be a city that comes down from God with people who have learned to live with one another and to share with one another and to be with one another and to contribute to one another's lives. That's the way heaven is described. It's modeled after Him and who He is. So, summarizing, what does it mean to be strong before God in Christ and everything we do? Well, let's add this fifth and final item to our list. The brighter we reflect God in community the stronger we become. Okay, let's pull it all together then. How has Paul responded to this wayward group of super apostles? What does it mean? What does it mean to be strong? What does it mean to be strong before God? What does it mean to be strong in Christ? What does it mean to be strong in everything we do? Well, I think the super apostles got it wrong, didn't they? It's not about pushing not about taking. It's not about slapping as they thought. Just the opposite. The truth, Paul says, is that the less I exalt myself, the stronger I become. The more I define myself in relationship to Christ, the stronger I become. The fuller I give myself to God's call on my life, the stronger I become. The harder I lean on His grace, the stronger I become. And the brighter we reflect our triune God in communities like this and ABFs and small groups and Christian fellowship, the stronger we become. I, for one, think the Apostle Paul got it right. What about you? Would you join me this morning, please, in a word of prayer? Lord, would you plant these truths about pushing and taking and slapping? Would you plant them deep into our hearts? Forgive us for being that kind of people. Would you help us to see that without you, we really are nothing? Would you help us also to see that with you, 
we're not inferior. We're just simply fulfilled. Would you help us to build a community here that's like the Trinity? Lord, in order to do that, we give ourselves to you today and all that we have. In Jesus' name, amen.